Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Tris. <laughs> and I'm genetically deficient. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and our show is located on the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase, Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequetum Ulu, although I'm joining from Algonquin Anishinaabeg territory. And today's text, Allegiant, takes place in dystopic Chicago on the traditional lands of the Peoria, Potawatomi, Miamia, Kaskaskia, and Kickapoo peoples. And Joe, for all that this book, and in fact the whole trilogy, is interested in control, power, mm -hmm. land mm -hmm. use, uh, indigenous identities are completely erased from this world. And I just, what a missed opportunity to do something interesting, Veronica Roth. That's the yeah. tone I'm starting with, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in hot and heavy. I like it. There's definitely an opportunity to talk about displaced people and taking yes. over land, considering we're talking about people who have been pushed to the fringe by people who came in with more money and more power and who just carved out a space on the land for themselves. Yes, but yeah. we don't. We don't we go do there not do anyway. That. No, because this is book three, Brenna. We, we've got a trilogy to wrap up. I have to say, Joe, the best thing about this episode mm -hmm. is that we can make our final points about the Divergent trilogy. Yes. And then put it away forever. <laughs> this is it. We're wrapping it up. <laughs> oh, you don't want to talk about the four standalone book that has chapters from his perspective? Literally... If you make me read that, I will, <laughs> I will quit the show. Oh, big threats, Brenna, big threats. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's actually a good place to start our discussion today, Joe, because mm -hmm. what's different about Allegiant compared to the previous novels is that we alternate here between Tris and Tobias's yes. perspectives. Mm -hmm. And a real criticism we had about both Divergent and Insurgent is that the constant focus on Tris's point of view is really stultifying. <laughs> it really is. She is such a rigid character that it makes it hard to do much that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, the part problem. of the problem, <laughs> I was going to say, Here. here's the problem. They both sound the same. They sound identical. Like, Joe, the number <laughs> of times when I either had to back up to see whose chapter I was reading or got halfway through a chapter and thanks to context clues figured out it was Triss or Tobias, mm -hmm. like... Yeah. honestly constantly and that's not a great sign when you have decided that you're going to give the book to two different voices to not have them be like mm. remotely distinct at all yeah yeah it's interesting i can't recall how quickly she put these three books together but they very much feel as though they were written sequentially very quickly you know, with sort of minor edits and then unleashed out into the world. But I think there's a problem with book series that do it this way because there's mm -hmm. no opportunity for reflection or even yes. taking criticisms on board to strengthen the writing in subsequent editions. Joe, this is an extremely fast cycle. The first book okay. came out in 2011 and the third book is out in 2013. And like, oh, there's boy. not even a full mm -hmm. year between them always. So wild wild and you know what like this is something we come back to time and time again i really think that the lack of commitment to the mm -hmm. editorial process <laughs> in ya writing is yep. a real sign of the of the industry's disrespect for this genre no matter how much money it makes because yeah. they know that by the time you get to the third book in a series meh like, mm -hmm. people are going to buy it to find out what happened to their favorite characters, and they don't care about the quality. And I think that that is a really gross thing to say about people, but I also think that it's been it's proven true. true. Yeah. 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 And, and this book... So here's the thing, folks. We came into this being like, okay, if we're too negative, we're going to wrap it up a little bit early. But then we both kind of discovered, actually, we don't mind the book as much as we thought no. we were maybe going to. I'll confess, I like the beginning and I like the end. Yeah. And then the middle part I find incredibly saggy and very repetitive to the point of redundancy to both Divergent and Insurgent. Yes, the middle chunk of the book is 
slow and it is Mm -hmm. redundant and it has a lot of the same problems we've had with the first two books which is like the plot structure is basically tobias promises something to tris Mm -hmm. he breaks his promise and he lies about it Mm -hmm. then they have to consternate about that Mm -hmm. then alternately tris (laughs) says something to tobias and Tris breaks her promise and then they have to consternate about that. And that's honestly the middle part of this book. It's better though, because that was all of Insurgent. So yes. now we at least have, I, I mean, spoiler alert, folks, Tris dies. And yep. honestly, the voice, like Tobias's voice is so much better defined from that point on. Mm-hmm. And like the world building is better because we're not stuck in that fraught relationship anymore and i think that i feel like a good editor could have had that conversation with roth a good editor had more time and said like like look at how much more you can do in the world when you're not stuck in this pattern with these two characters yes there's that and i think the other piece that works so well about the beginning but more specifically the end is that we're also putting a capper or we're wrapping up we're finishing we're moving on mm-hmm. past revolution like there's yes. a point in this book where tobias says i've been in three uprisings in as many <laughs> years and i was like yeah dude same and you know what <laughs> they're all identical even though the players are apparently changing like janine is dead at the beginning of this book you know she's the one who was manipulating most of the action in book one and two along with marcus who is tobias's father and then in come Tobias's mother, Evelyn, who just does the same thing. And she's butting heads with like Joanna and this other woman. And I'm like, all of these names sound too similar. And yes. all of their points are all too similar. Like the reason I didn't mind the beginning of this book is because we actually leave Chicago behind. Like yes. the book is called Allegiant, but we then leave the Allegiant uprising behind. And suddenly we're in this world where it's like, oh, we're actually going to explain explore some new things and that kind of makes it interesting (laughs) yeah i agree with you i like that we get into a new world i like that we get to have some curiosity about the backstory as always with these kind of stories i'm more interested in how the world came to be usually than whatever love story i'm being served so Mm -hmm. all of that stuff the stuff with triss's mom's journal love that all the pieces that were (laughs) all the pieces that were new and a little bit different I enjoyed. I think well, that with with a caveat because this genetic deficiency oh, yeah, slash genetic part. purity stuff is nonsense garbage and honestly it sounds like eugenics. Well, it is eugenics. I mean, it is. Um, <laughs> I just don't. Ooh, it makes me so uncomfortable because Veronica Roth doesn't. I don't know. It, it really felt like she was out of her depth writing yes. about this stuff. I agree completely. It is eugenics. It's not like eugenics. Like literally they're trying to create a race of people who are genetically pure and the people who are <laughs> not genetically pure are treated worse by society. So like it's it's eugenics. But I think to me, I'm also not including that in the new stuff because that's okay. also just factions and divergence. Like yes. it's literally the SSDD. Like it's <laughs> – and I think, you know – I I get the writerly urge to push the faction concept to its logical and surreal extreme. I Mm -hmm. get that. But I agree with you that I think Roth is not careful enough of a writer to do that well. And I think that we end up in a situation where, like, I know, folks, I know we haven't given you a plot summary, but honestly... You don't need one. You're fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's a new guy who, David, who works at the Bureau outside of Chicago. We learned that Chicago was actually one of four remaining experiments with factions. And it was all an attempt to create divergents who are considered pure, genetically pure, because they have been repaired after a fallout from something called the Purity War Brenna. I know. Purity war, Brenna. And listeners, you're going to be really shocked to hear this important detail. Please sit down. (laughs) Trace is genetically pure. (gasps) What? (laughs) And Tobias is not? What? He's He's a fake divergent. He's just Mm -hmm. a really, he just has an extremely strong mind, but he's not actually divergent. I will confess, apart from this like disgusting eugenics nonsense, 
I did kind of admire Ross' willingness to just explode her own concept for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I get what you mean. Like, all the markers that they've used to identify other divergent people are effectively exploded at this point in the narrative. Is that what you mean? Well, that and the fact that it's kind of like, oh, erudite versus candor versus dauntless, like, none of it matters. Yeah, it was it's all, all totally garbage up. manufactured conflict that these people in the bureau were basically just observing like, oh, you're just dumb, dumb guinea pigs. Meanwhile, the, the real world is out here trying to rescue itself. And Kinda there is <laughs> something interesting from like, a, I don't know, sociological perspective about seeing how people react to finding out factions are fake, because mm -hmm. immediately what a bunch of people do is like create allegiant which mm -hmm. the allegiant are <laughs> a, the thing they are allegiant to nobody ever really articulates this in the narrative but like nope. they, they are allegiant to the concept of factions that's what they're yes. allegiant to and um so you know it's interesting to see that versus the people who see being factionless as being freedom mm -hmm. like that that stuff all has the potential to be interesting but sure. we spend so much of our time being honestly just pulled back into triss's drama and it's not even that the things she's upset about aren't worthwhile, right? So, like, there's a big through arc here about whether or not she can ever forgive her brother, Caleb, for being complicit in her planned execution. Right. Those are stakes, mm -hmm. sure. But sure. part of the problem is that Roth never knows when we've gone to that well enough times. And so... <sighs> Hit it 12 more times. <laughs> and you actually, like, I don't know about you, Joe, but I felt bad for Caleb by a certain point in the text because I was mm -hmm. like... You need to either kill him, get over yourself, or walk away. Because this thing where you just, like, stew at him across the room for mm -hmm. 300 pages, like, I can't keep doing this. Yeah, and maybe punch him in the face every once in a while, or look at a piece of art and be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like us. Punch, 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 punch. <laughs> oh, yeah, I forgot about that scene. It's easy to forget about those <laughs> scenes. I know. They're, you know, it's a grippy read. I got through it very quickly, and as I say, there were aspects of it that I thought were more complicating for the world in, in really positive ways, mm -hmm. but in general, there is not enough new here to no. warrant having written a third book, let alone uh, a third book that is 526 pages in the first edition, let alone accidentally getting the collector's edition out of the library <laughs> like yours truly over here. <laughs> well, I wonder, can you imagine, and yes, I'm speculating at this point, can you imagine a version of this book where we just kind of opened with this reveal that the Bureau is evil, none of this genetically pure versus deficient stuff. It's just, hey, we've been manipulating you. We are yep. the masterminds. We're evil. And Triss gets killed. And then we have like maybe the rest of the book. Well, like 150 more pages of yeah. what happens to the rest of the world. Because as much as I'm praising Roth for sort of stepping out of the sandbox before stepping back into it for most of the book, I was interested in the rest of the world. Like there's I a moment too. where they go up in an airplane and none of them have ever flown before and they get a sense of how small they actually are, how small their ridiculous conflict has been for three books mm -hmm. in the vastness of the rest of the world. And I just thought, I'm actually interested in a book that examines how they rebuild this. And that's what yes. we get in the Tobias stuff at the end. And I was trying to imagine what would a whole book of this look like? Wouldn't it be so much more satisfying? Well, it would be so much more satisfying because that moment that you're describing is extremely frustrating because Uriah is like, wow, the world is really, really tiny. Like, I can't believe how small all of this is. Mm -hmm. And Tris is like, yeah, wow. And then Moving she goes on. back to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, she lands again on, on terra firma and she goes to Tobias and she's like, I was just in an airplane. And he was like, yeah, I don't think I would have enjoyed that. You know, the heights thing. And she's like, wow, I'm rethinking our whole relationship because you weren't excited about the airplane. And it's just like, oh, you learned mm -hmm. nothing then. Okay, that's yeah. cool. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. Oh, boy. Her off the cuff reactions to everything he says. <laughs> I was like, this is book three. Can we just please move past this? There's one point where he he says the most innocuous thing and she flies off the handle. And yeah. I just thought, I get it. They're still basically teenagers with stunted yeah. growth because they have been forced into conflict too early. But I just wanted to shake Trish. She is one of the most aggravating heroines yeah. we have ever had to deal with. 
I think that's the moment where he accuses her of being jealous of Nina. Yes, yeah. And yeah, she does, she goes off her rocker at him. And it's like, again, I get it. But also, Mm -hmm. this might be the problem in your relationship, (laughs) generally. Maybe you're just not right for each other. (laughs) You two literally never listen to each other and weirdly always fight as a result. Like, Mm -hmm. shock and awe. He's so much more compelling after she's dead. (laughs) He's so much more compelling after he's dead. But the reality is that, like, the stuff about grief is actually really interesting. Yes! And the ways in which he's grieving for Triss, but he's also grieving for a version of Triss who never existed, right? Like, there was never a version of Triss who wasn't going to sacrifice herself to save Caleb, even though everything has happened. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. person doesn't exist. And so there's all this sort of stuff about, like, he goes to take the memory serum to erase his memory, and Christina's like, you can't do that because that's not the person- She would like, hate you. She would hate you for doing that. That's not the person, like, that's, that's cowardly. That's not who you are. That's not who you are together. And it's there's actually quite a lot of interesting stuff that there's not enough space to tease out because we only get about 40 pages. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree with you completely. Like, we should have killed Triss off earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other interesting piece about this book, which the movie just absolutely disregards because yeah. the movie is garbage trash. It's really bad. I like in this book how we basically come to the realization that it's not about fighting. Like, there's mm-hmm. something to be said for not fighting mm-hmm. as a as a potential solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. In fact, almost all of the characters go through a growth arc. And I think one of the most interesting things is that there is a level at which Triss sacrifices herself for Caleb. Yes, she does. But she also mm-hmm. kind of sacrifices herself. So she never has to have a critical like self-reinvention. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all the other characters have to live in this after world. And I'm not sure yes. Triss could the way no. Roth has constructed her. Yeah. It's almost like she realizes... I'm better off dying because I don't want to have to go through grief and pain and loss. And part of this is, you know, yeah, she's been through a lot of that. There's a lot of moments in the book where people reflect on just how many people have died. And I wish that those moments landed harder. But honestly, there's so many extraneous characters that I just kept confusing them. Like, Mm -hmm. Christina's still talking about Will, who died in book one. And I was like... I can barely remember a defining aspect of this character. Yeah. I think that in general, there is a problem here with the emotional stakes. Like, Mm -hmm. I've spent three books with Triss. I should Mm -hmm. have felt more when she died. Well, and this is maybe where we enter the conversation as jaded adults, because when this <laughs> book came out, yeah. there was an uprising and a revolution against <laughs> Roth. Oh, okay. People okay. were P-I-S-S-E-D about Triss dying. But right. I think it was almost even less about Triss than what do you mean we don't get a happy romantic ending? Well, this is so interesting, right? Because remember the end of Hunger Games mm-hmm. where... Well, no, we'll we'll cover it shortly. No, but... <laughs> no, I even mean just like at the end of the first book of Hunger Games where like sure. Katniss is alive, but like deeply traumatized Mm -hmm. right and i mean colin's got a lot of flack for that too right for like the fact that it's not peachy keen between her and Peta at the end that it's sort of like this is the best she will ever hope for because this is what like this is what happens after you killed a whole lot of people Mm -hmm. and i think that i get you know roth has killed off a central character and a lot of people find that super brave but i actually like she wrote herself into a corner because there is no version of Triss who could live with everything that has happened. Well, Triss is never happy, right? She's always no. looking for the next conflict to fight in because that's yeah. who she has labeled herself as yes. now. Like, who would she be outside of factions? She keeps talking mm-hmm. in this book about how, like, you know, like, she's glad the factions are gone, but she totally exclusively identifies with dauntless characteristics and Mm -hmm. she's relieved to find out that her mom's history was one of sort of faction hopping right because it means that like the sort of connection that she feels to dauntlessness is is real because it's what she's created for herself and i find all of that really it could be (laughs) 
Could yeah, be interesting. <laughs> it could be. But it's almost like Roth doesn't know when to put away the factions and have mm-hmm. these characters come to terms with who they are as whole people. Right. And Tobias really does have to do that at the end of the book. He's even shed the name Four by then, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, we never get that arc for Triss, unfortunately. Um, no. Speaking of characters. Yes. Can we talk about Peter? Yeah, this is interesting how do you feel about this redemption arc for peter so i'm fascinated by the fact that peter peter's still like an asshole he's garbage yeah he's garbage and he's always threatening to like do them in through this whole book Mm -hmm, but he never mm -hmm. actually does and instead what he does is he gets the memory serum from Tobias and he wipes himself basically and his argument is that he knows that he is broken and damaged and not in the genetically broken and damaged sense but in the (laughs) fact that like he clearly doesn't like believe in anything or well he's prone to like psychotic violence yeah and he will always betray like whoever is next to him it doesn't Mm -hmm. even matter like it seems like he's weirdly like a compulsive betrayer yeah. and he decides to wipe his memory and start fresh. I'm fascinated by this on a number of levels mm-hmm. because if that's possible, then yeah. what is all the genetic conversation even about? Right? Because mm-hmm. obviously genes don't actually matter. Well, especially not in the way they're presented in this book where it's like, yeah. oh, they're defining traits. Like so much of this book wants to have a conversation about nature versus nurture, yes. but we literally never use that term. It's always about genetic deficiency. So it's like we have these damaged figures, we have these undamaged figures, and then we have Peter whose position is that he is damaged to the point of never coming back. But he can change himself with this memory serum. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, in the rest of the book, we're being told all the time that people's behavior is not at all compelled by their... Exactly. I just found it very confused. Mm -hmm. And it's a weird, easy way out for Peter's character, too, because at the end, he's basically just like... He's derp, a shell. Derp, how does a core work? <laughs> like, like... <laughs> I'm standing around looking up at the sky because I don't have a personality anymore. Which direction is down? And also, <laughs> the book can't decide what people need to be retaught after the memory serum and what they don't, because that mm-hmm. varies widely as well. <sighs> it's just not very carefully put together. There's a lot of interesting threads here. Sure. It feels a lot like a missed opportunity. Well, it feels like a book that was probably written in a couple of months and then rushed to publication as opposed to somebody sitting down and saying, you've got a bunch of really intriguing ideas here, but they're not being fleshed out. And sure, young adult readers maybe won't care too, too much, but also, shouldn't we put in the effort to do better? Yeah. (laughs) And yet. And yet. (laughs) Speaking of things that aren't better, Joe. You want to talk about the movie? <laughs> Welcome. Your arrival is the most exciting event some of us have ever known. Hey, Four. How do they know who we are? Our surveillance technology is centuries ahead of anything you've known. They've grown up watching you. Nothing creepy about that. Tobias Eaton, you've been assigned to me. It's a lot of firepower. It'll take you a while to get the hang of it. I think I got the hang of it. In 200 years, the greatest scientific minds have lived here to test a theory. If we could rescue people from a toxic environment and put them in a safe place like Chicago, perhaps they would heal it. And I'm one of those people. You are the only one. Is it worth sustaining this population that's determined to destroy themselves? What's going on here? They're shutting us down. Chicago will be erased. Everyone we know will die. You were right all along. We have to leave. Right now. Where are we going? Home. All right. So, Allegiant, the film, was part one of a two-planned finale for this because that's what we were doing at the time so the film comes out in 2016 and this is in the wake of harry potter and the deathly hallows part two in 2011 twilight breaking dawn part two in 2012 
Mockingjay Part 2 in 2015, and then comes this film. And I can say that the first two were smash successes. So Mm -hmm. Hollywood learned the wrong lesson, which was break the finale into two, make money, cha-ching, cha-ching. And then Mockingjay Part 2 showed that there was a loosening of appetites for that. And then comes Allegiant. So... Allegiant cost 110 to $142 million. I don't understand how. Ooh, we'll talk about the effects. <laughs> but this movie only grossed $179.2 million worldwide. So this yep. is a huge failure. It basically immediately put the kibosh on Ascendant, which would have been the fourth film that wrapped things up. I will say... I realized mid-film, I had never seen this. I stopped after Insurgent. It is directed by the same guy, Robert Schwenke. It's written by Noah Oppenheim, Adam Cooper, and Bill Collage. And what's shocking about the film is that we're actually adapting, I would say, about 75% of this book. It's so much of it. I have no idea where Ascendant would have actually gone because it doesn't seem like there's enough material... I mean, I imagine they would have built up the Triss battle, like her just dying because David shoots her in the back a couple of times is very anticlimactic in a film. Yeah. Like it works in a book, but not in a movie. So it would have been interesting to see how they would have handled it. But I wonder if they would have dedicated more to the post Triss world building. Yeah, I um, I don't know. I mean, the final scene of the movie is David's face. And obviously, we're about to get like you know, Mm -hmm. more of that story. Right. But I, I think I'm unconvinced. (laughs) I think I'm unconvinced that there's enough there, Mm -hmm. like without, without obviously a lot of additional writing. And what I find so frustrating about this film is that, well, actually, let me read you. Let me Mm -hmm. read you a brief review. It's IGN's review of this movie is all of my feelings, basically. (laughs) Allegiant is a prime example of everything that's wrong with modern YA sequels. Instead of embracing or building upon its core themes and constructs, it tears them all down with a wrecking ball of CGI and nonsensical storytelling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, are you going to want to go through the cast and stuff or can I start complaining? Oh, sure. Yeah, I (laughs) I can quickly go through the cast. Okay, so we've got Shailene Woodley returning as Triss, Theo James returning as Four, Jeff Daniels as our new villain, David. Not well used. Also, very weird casting. It, it just seemed like an odd choice to me. Yes, agreed. Uh, also new to the cast is Bill Skarsgård as Matthew, who is basically a geneticist in the book. He ends up helping them because he doesn't believe in the genetic deficiency eugenics project. And here he kind of does something but he's bill skarsgård so he looks evil like he's going to betray everybody all the time i find it very confusing as a result (laughs) (laughs) it's a problem with bill skarsgård he's a lovely very attractive man but you know when i tell you he mostly works in horror as a villain are you surprised no he has resting evil face yeah exactly (laughs) <laughs> uh, also returning, we have Miles Teller as Peter doing Ugh. a hissably nuisance job as usual. Ansel Elgort as Caleb, still having too much sexual chemistry with Shailene Woodley from yep. uh, The Fault in Our Stars. Yep. Zoe Kravitz, I do not know. I can only imagine she was contractually obliged to return for this because Christina is not in this movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. New character, Johnny Weston as Edgar. That's Evelyn's uh, second in command. He's the guy with like the shaved sides of his head who just like runs around pouting and shooting at people a lot. Evelyn is Naomi Watts returning briefly from that second movie. We've also got Octavia Spencer as Johanna, who is the leader of the Allegiant slash former Amity neither of these two women have anything interesting to do maggie q dies yeah the final character we haven't talked about much is nita she's played by nadia hilker in the film she has nothing to do i presume she would have been given quite a bit more to do in ascendant but in the book she's actually a hugely important character who's kind of launching the rebellion inside the bureau This to me was the biggest clue about where we would go with Ascendant is that we would have fleshed out all of the Nita, all of the Matthew, and all of the David stuff. 
Yeah, because there's basically no internal rebellion stuff in the movie. It's all about the memory serum plotline. Like, mm -hmm. that's the central focus. So I assume they would have teased that out separately, although it it's hard to figure out how they would have knit them together unless there were going to be, like, alternating timelines happening or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the, the film still has elements from the fringe. So basically, if you live mm -hmm. within the Bureau, you're living in opulence and or care and safety. And then if you're poor, genetically deficient people, then you live in the fringes. And this is kind of the the waste, the rubble, you're living in kind of shanties. It's mm -hmm. coded poor, we'll put it that yeah. way. Well, and there are no poor people in the Energetically pure, right? World, basically, yeah. Yes, yeah. So the the film tries to give you a sense of that. Like at one point, four and Christina and I think Nita. She's honestly she just fades into the background at every instance in this film. But they actually go on a kind of reconnaissance mission because it's revealed that the bureau is abducting children so that we can. I mean, it's very uncomfortable. We're basically separating children from their parents so that if they test genetically pure, they get to grow up in the city and become, you know, quote unquote, contributing members of society. And if not, we're comfortable just shooting people and other horrible things. Yep, you got mm -hmm. it. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's basically the long and the short of it. Um, yeah, I mean, the the major conflict is that David plans to reset Chicago using a memory serum. It's mm -hmm. the same as the book. The difference is that in the book, we're just going to drop the memory serum from a plane. Yeah. So we don't even have to go back to Chicago. And in the film, we've got to go in and do this very secretive mission where we're going to unleash it from the erudite headquarters. But Peter has to go in and trick Evelyn into yeah. doing it under like... A big old lie because of course that's what peter does it's all supposed to be very exciting but it ends up leading to this climax of tris oh, running God. through really bland looking underground tunnels while david is like hologram closing doors on her <laughs> and you're just like this is dumb what are we doing right now yeah it it is dumb um the thing that I found most frustrating about the film version is that for all of Triss's faults in the book, mm -hmm. she's not an idiot. Whereas in the movie, Triss is like all in on David's project. Mm -hmm. Like it's basically a rewrite of her sort of backing Marcus in Insurgent. It's just a yeah. rewrite of that story. But now the person she's following is David. And so we spend so much time, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously knowing that david is evil, evil. Yep. <laughs> and tris not knowing it and uh, for all that she's sort of insufferable in the ways in which she tries to control force behavior in the book mm -hmm. it's so much better than what she gets here well it's wild too because in the book tris is always right and she gets really frustrated when tobias doesn't believe her because she's like for every time you doubt me I'm always proven correct. And it's like, yes. why won't you just believe me? You think I'm a silly girl who's jealous. And again, compelling stuff. Wish we had have unpacked it a little bit more in a way that isn't the two of them bickering and not trusting each other. And then they just don't talk to each other for three chapters. Yeah, sure. And then they make out. Yeah, yeah, all of that. <laughs> Whereas in the film, Triss is practically a dumb dumb as you said yeah. she just immediately falls for david's whole project it's so obvious that he's bad the whole time and tobias is the one who's accurate and he's like well, not only am i genetically deficient but i don't get to go up in the elevator to the tall part of the building and i feel <laughs> sad and it's it's weird like the film spends a ton of cgi money on building up the bureau so it's got like hovering hearts that don't seem to have any kind of function like architecture wise and we're flying around in weird helicopter hovercraft things listeners if you haven't watched this Ooh. movie you need to understand that this is the worst looking movie of certainly of that year it must be like <laughs> there are all these moments where i know we we were kind of like we were harsh on red white and royal blues use of the green screen but like yep found myself longing for it at oh, certain boy. scenes in this movie it looks so so bad even on a tiny ipad screen it looks bad i i just mm -hmm. 
I'm sort of baffled by how they spent the money. <laughs> like, oh. Whence? <laughs> it's very odd. Yeah, like I have to assume it was a lot of this kind of stuff. But there's moments where as soon as we leave the city, we discover that basically the city's protected by a force field that David controls. And when you get past oh it, God. the whole landscape is just wasteland, like radioactive looking. And it's very bizarre. Hey, this film was shot in Georgia. And this does not look like any version of Georgia we've ever seen in any of the Disney films or previous other films that were shot there. Like, it looks like they went to a mining facility and yeah. shot some of these. But also, it's been digitally touched up to look yes. more red and purple and scary and threatening. But horribly so, because you can mm -hmm. practically see green lines shimmering off of the characters' outlines where we are artificially negotiating the images. It's extremely frustrating visually because mm -hmm. none of that is necessary. Like, no. yes, the world outside of Chicago should look different, mm -hmm. but... None of this was necessary. No. <laughs> and, and it feels like they spent all their money in the wrong places. And also, that stupid camo wall. Like, Joe, for <laughs> Stop the saying camo wall. <laughs> <laughs> for the first time in a long time, I basically watched the movie first. Like, I read about 100 pages. And then I was like, I had time where watching the movie was easier. So I, I leaped ahead and I watched the film and I came back. Mm-hmm. I cannot tell you the sheer <laughs> relief that i felt when i realized that the camo wall doesn't exist in the book i still had to spend another 400 some odd pages with like so s such relief <laughs> oh my god listeners this was probably the most hilarious week that i have had with brenna about the pod <laughs> in maybe a year the sheer number of texts of I tried to watch more of the film and I fell asleep again. It took you how many tries? Five? Five tries. It took me five tries. So impressive. So proud of you. <laughs> I, I, and I, I think it's just because it's bad. <laughs> like, it's legitimately. It's one of those things where we can tell you it's bad and then you'll watch yeah. it and be like, oh, come on, folks. It's not that awful. It's just, it's so bad boring yeah. and it feels so lifeless and it's also long this is a two-hour movie and i i finished it and just thought i'm not sure i could tell you anything about what happened in that movie and let's be clear like when you're watching a movie for a podcast it's a really different experience like sure. i can't be like on my phone catching up on my duolingo during the boring moments like i have mm -hmm. to actually pay attention to what's happening so i think like when we tell you a movie is boring you got to remember that, like, we don't have any additional aids <laughs> to get us through. <laughs> no we just have to watch and pay attention. And that makes a big difference. Like, yeah, okay, I could see you put this on in the background and you check your Instagram for two hours and maybe it doesn't feel so tedious. But mm -hmm. this was this was hard. And I also think as much as the book misplaces the emotional core, yes. the film just doesn't even attempt to have one. No. No, what was most surprising about the film the fact that Shailene Woodley is, like, she's here. Yeah. She's mostly front and center, but it feels like the movie forgets about its own heroine. Like, yes. they give her nothing to do. No, she walks around a lot. She walks around in a pressed white outfit and, mm -hmm. and believes at David. Like, that's really what she does. And it's, you know, she has some great emotional beats in the book for all that it frustrates me. The, sure. the scene where she goes to see what happens in the fringes and suddenly mm -hmm. realizes, like, why her mother chose abnegation. Because yeah. that's the only group of people who want to help anyone. Like, mm -hmm. everyone in this society is just like, well, once we fix how genetically broken these people are, they'll be fine. And it's like, oh, right. okay. You don't want to actually just give this hungry person a sandwich? Yeah. That Those seeds are beautiful. And we get... None, None of that in the film. <laughs> no, it's an action sequence for uh, Theo James to show off his physical prowess. And you know what? He still looks great. I he enjoy does. looking at him. Again, this is a very beautiful cast of people. Yeah. They're badly outfitted. I don't like any of the costuming, but that's no. okay. It's just, yeah, it's so perplexing about how the film seems to have no idea about what makes any part of the story compelling so it it's not even that it's focusing on the wrong things or it's making it more exciting because it's an action film compared to a book 
it's doing all of that, but also it just doesn't seem to have a purpose. No. It's like a $140 million wash. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to talk about two... Well, we are, you already talked about the problematic casting of Ansel Elgort. I don't know if... I don't know if Ansel Elgort and Shailene Woodley can ever be in movies again. I don't know mm-hmm. what it is about them, but like, if they're not playing love interests, they're playing oh, love interests. Oh, that's why you're saying he's problematic. He's actually since come out as a, like an actual problematic figure where he's like a bit of oh, a, no, like really? a sexual harassment, sex abuser <sighs> kind of guy. So. Oh, of course he has. Um, yeah. But the other person, speaking of people who I'm pretty sure are mildly problematic in real life. Um, Miles Teller? Miles Teller. <laughs> Hate him. <laughs> This is one of the worst performances I've ever seen. He's just, he's so smarmy jokey. And I know that that's the direction the films have always taken him in, but he is distractingly so in this film. The final monologue is one of the worst things I've ever watched. (laughs) So Miles, uh, Miles Teller's Peter doesn't try to evolve or change. He tries to betray everyone. And when it fails, he gets exiled out of the domed community i guess so he's just like out there the camel wall won't open for him and he's just like he's just stuck it's so stupid and he just yells at the sky and they solidly give it like three and a half minutes like it goes (laughs) on endless and on and it doesn't feel scripted it feels like he's Mm ad-libbing and it's like it's weird because I don't think we ever get a three and a half minute sequence of just Triss, Mm-mm. but we get a three and a half minute sequence of Peter yelling at the sky as the end of the movie. It's a good example of like the movie not knowing where the yep. central focus is best placed. But it's Miles Teller. We love him. Such a, an exciting up and coming actor. Gonna go off and be in that Tom Cruise movie. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know what i love that one where he was a drummer and then ever since then he's just gotten on my nerves <laughs> fair very fair mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right i don't think i have anything else to say about this joe that isn't whiny do you have things to say that aren't whiny or are we done no i i agree with you i think we're mostly done so let's wrap it up with some ya bingo all right bingo not a good bingo so at the heart of any eugenics project is ableism, so we're going to definitely have that square here. Sure. Yeah. I think that there are some really sweet date moments in the book. Okay. There's one moment where they are they go up to like the top level of the weird hotel thing that they're staying in and it's just the two of them oh, yeah. and they mm-hmm. they reflect on the fact that like they never get to, you know, go on a date. And I liked that scene. So I'm going to give perfect date to that scene. It's one of the few times I actually felt connected to them as like a couple. It seems weird, but I would even give it to for finally riding the zip line after Triss has oh, died yeah. and realizing why she liked it so much. That's a good example actually. That's a great example. I all the stuff around grief I thought was actually pretty well done. Yeah, where is that book? (laughs) Yeah, where's that book? Where's that movie? (laughs) It's called Not a Bestseller and Not a Successful (laughs) Film, but... uh. So we have a million different borrowed time sequences. Sure. Like, everything is always under the clock, but I'll give it for this to the memory serum being released in the film version. Right. The the time ticking down. Um, There's 400 road trips. They're always... We're always on the move. Yeah. <laughs> CGI nonsense to the So max. bad. I I know that I am harshly critical about CGI. Mm-hmm. But that is why I texted you and I was like, Joe, did you do you also think that this movie is the worst looking thing you've ever seen? <laughs> <laughs> it is an extremely ugly film, considering yeah. they're trying to do a very polished veneer on the bureau and what it looks like. And it looks bad it's inauthentic i am gonna give it house porn though because even david's office floor is opulent yeah i agree with that totally weirdly enough we have queer secondary characters in the book we've got george and mr and of course those characters are not in the film no they're not in the film and here's something i didn't mention about amar in the book part of our conversation joe but Mm -hmm. this to me is an example of like just where an editor should have stepped in right we get told that amar is the most important person after tris in tobias's life Mm -hmm. a chapter before we meet him for the first time it's like (laughs) well that's convenient Yeah, and then later on, there's a section, and maybe this is just, it's a difference in the way that people view their relationships, but 
later on, Amar ends up admitting, oh, yeah, he doesn't really know Tobias that well. You know, he thought he had promise as an initiate in Dauntless. And I was just like, oh, Tobias thinks you're like in the top five of most important people. Okay, okay. He definitely has you on his MySpace, but okay. Right. <laughs> um, um, oh, boy. The score of this movie sucked, so I'm not giving it musicality. No, there was nothing memorable about it. All, although we do get plenty of action-y montages. Mm-hmm. Yes, lots and lots and lots of montage. I guess it's stunt casting for What's-His-Face who plays David? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Brenna, do you think that there's a chosen one narrative in here? <sighs> <laughs> that the movie kind of Fs up by making her so stupid. Truly, yeah. Like, interestingly enough, they also don't have sex in the film, which no, I thought... No, they do not. Because it's significant. I think she's Mormon, if I recall, but Veronica Roth, like, fully wrote in a... I mean, it's coded, but... It's clearly a sex scene in the book. Yeah. Well, yes. They very fades to, and then they wake up, and they're still mm-hmm. lying on the couch together. <laughs> yeah. I am going to give it to, obviously, Dead Body, Dead Family. Yes. In fact, I think we should be allowed to have that square multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do want to give one to Good Friendships in the book, the friendship that emerges between Christina and Tobias. I really like Okay. You should have seen the face I made before you explained. (laughs) Because I was like, what are we talking about? The last 40 pages of the book, the part I liked, Mm -hmm. there's a good friendship in there, Joe. I mean, I love this. I love that we're basically pitching, hey, the book is worth your time, but just read maybe the (laughs) beginning part and then those last 40 pages. Real, real solid. I mean, you can watch Tris die if you want. It's a little bit cathartic. (laughs) (laughs) As as she goes to ghost mom. (sighs) Sweetie, that's a hallucination. You've been shot (laughs) multiple times. Exactly. Ghost mom. (laughs) Ghost mom. I do think we have to call it an authentic voice because if we can't tell Tris and Tobias apart, then one of those voices is not working. Mm, That's good. We haven't been able to use that square in a while. No. Um, all this to say, still no line. Oh, for <laughs> sake, Veronica Roth, what are you good for? <laughs> uh, Brenna, <sighs> we've done it. We finally tackled all three of these nonsense books and movies. I just want to say MVP of the Year award to Shailene Woodley for being like, you may have torpedoed your the fourth movie, but I am not doing the TV series. This thing is dead. Oh, yeah, folks. We, we looked that up and it was basically they were probably going to go ahead with turning this into a TV show. And then Woodley just flat out said, absolutely not. I am not doing that. And it's funny because I think a lot of folks got mad at her for saying, oh, I'm too good for TV. But then she turns around a year later and does big little lies. So yeah. it was clearly, if you're not paying me movie star salary to be in this garbage cluster f yeah uh, no i'm gonna go off and make like award-winning television with somebody who's actually good well that's the thing right like can you imagine having just made allegiant and then being like would you trust this story with us to do a, a limited run tv series like mm-hmm. no 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 i will <sighs> say i know we're wrapping up i think the big thing for me the takeaway from all of this is that there's some decent stuff in here mm-hmm. i would love for someone to revisit this material in a couple of years distill the faction stuff down into what is actually interesting torpedo the eugenic stuff into the sun but like i think there's some interesting things that could be done here and i could see it as a we're coming back we're gonna do eight episodes on netflix or amazon prime and just you know do the central stuff that makes this story interesting god you got a lot of faith joe (laughs) well here's the thing i have enough faith in hollywood to recognize that this ip will become valuable again in time if we're making a harry potter eight season commitment on max you can can bet your sweet butt we're gonna revisit divergence at some point in the future all right well on that happy note (laughs) (laughs) if you want to tell us uh well i should tell you this is the end of uh, book five this is the end of five years of this podcast joe 
This is true. Yeah, we've had another 50 episodes. So if if I've done the math somewhat correctly, we should be at around 250 episodes. That's amazing. Solid. And we're not taking a break or anything. Don't worry. No, uh, next don't worry. Week. We'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs> we're starting book six with the graphic novel A Sister and the Canadian film adaptation Falcon Lake. So check hmm. that out if you get a chance. And then uh, we got some silliness coming your way with a mini-sode on classic piece of cinema first daughter starring katie holmes that's coming up right after <laughs> yes and brenda did you want to do a content warning for real life sexual abuse for a sister yes joe and i are still reading and learning about it but we understand that the creator of the comic book a sister has uh, some sexual violence in his history so we will address that on the show so take care when reading but also take care when listening next week Hmm. Okay, so if you want to write to us and tell us that we have wildly missed the plot with Allegiant and actually it's great, you can find <laughs> us on the email hkhspod at gmail.com. No one ever us- takes that bait. <laughs> <laughs> or you can find us on various social media outlets at hkhspod. Including Instagram now. Yes, we have Instagram now and it's a fun way to find us and Joe is uh, really killing it on the socials posting. So thank oh, you, Joe. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, do you want to tell people where they find you? Absolutely, yes. I can be reached at B, still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray on the Blue Sky and at Mittenstrings on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So until next time, Joe, I guess um, I will see you on the page, but not not a Veronica Roth page for there some, some time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, promises, promises. <laughs> and I will see you with a green hologram oh, outline God. on the screen. <laughs> Oh, all the stuff about, you know, oh, erudite versus abeg, ab, 